Ski, Shoot, Repeat, a biathlon podcast, hosted by Lizzie Boyle. Episode 7. Let's get physical. I normally start these episodes with a story to set the scene. This week is different. This week I'm going to start with some audience participation. So get ready to get physical. Endurance sports like cross-country skiing, cycling, rowing and running all place different demands on the body. In most of these cases, it's the same set of techniques over and over again. If you're running, it's the same stride. If you're rowing, it's repetition of the same stroke. The intensity may change, but the motion stays pretty much the same. Biathlon and cross-country skiing, of course, are different. Typically, a cross-country race, of course, will be about one-third uphill, one-third flat, and one-third downhill. Biathlon courses may be a bit gentler in, in the uphill and downhill side of things, and they also have to have space for a shooting range, but each type of terrain requires a different skiing technique. Now, the easiest one to imagine is downhill, because you can just point and go. I mentioned in a previous episode that this isn't as easy as it sounds because cross-country skis are narrower than downhill skis and really not designed for this, but you can hopefully picture this one quite easily. Now on the flat sections, most biathletes will use what's called skate two. So let's do this together. Stand up. Imagine you have ski poles, one in each hand. Now mentally push yourself forward using both poles equally. You'll bend forward a little from your core to do this. Now imagine if you were just pushing yourself using your arms on a flat surface on skis or roller skates, if that's easier to imagine. Now, while you're doing this, instead of your feet doing nothing, they'll be skating left and then right, left and then right, pushing outwards and back to give you forward momentum. This is called skate two. Now, there are two versions of this. Regular skate two is when you push with the poles on every step with your feet. So push the poles and skate with the left, then push again as you skate with the right. Now, skate two is basically your accelerator mode gets you started, gets you up and running. Once you're up to speed, then you can slow down the rate of your arms, your poles, and you only push every two steps. This is called alternate skate two, and it's kind of your cruising mode or motorway driving, giving your arms a bit of a rest and letting your legs and momentum carry you. So that's going to get you going and keep you cruising along the flat sections. Now imagine we're at the bottom of a hill. If you tried to go uphill in skate two, It'd be like going uphill in fifth or sixth gear in a car. After a while, everything is going to start to strain and struggle. In a car, you change down a gear, and that's what you do here. You move into what's called skate one. I hope you're still standing up. Good. Now imagine that you're at the bottom of a very steep flight of stairs. The stairs are narrow enough that you can feel the walls on either side of you with your hands. They're handrails. Okay? Now start climbing. With your legs, you'd go left, right, left, right, up the stairs, using your leg muscles to push you upwards, taking shorter steps to suit the steepness of the stairs. And your hands? Well, imagine you're kind of pulling yourself up with handrails on either side. Your arms are doing a lot more work now because the stairs are quite steep. But you're most likely to lead with one hand. You might keep your left hand slightly forward and your right hand slightly back. Just gently help yourself up the stairs as you go. Make sense? This is kind of skate one, the climbing mode. 
at this point, I'll admit that each time I do a podcast, I realise how hard it is to describe something really physical. Hopefully standing up and joining in has given you a sense of the physical movements involved. But if it still seems unfathomable, then go to the YouTube channel of Brian Halligan. That's Brian with an I and Halligan spelled H-A-L-L-I-G-A-N. He has some great explainer videos all about the different techniques and a picture really does speak a thousand words. The point of all this was to indicate that biathlon skiing, cross-country skiing, requires a mix of upper body and lower body movements, which change during the course of a race and which place a series of demands on the biathlete's body. Shooting requires another set of physiological skills and traits, which I'll come to later. So my deep dive this week is into physiology, anatomy and biomechanics. I'll also be looking back at the race weekend in Pekluka in Slovenia and ahead to the meet in Rupolding in Germany, which starts on Wednesday the 11th of January. But before we get to that, let's get our Dr Frankenstein vibe on and ask the question, how do you build your own biathlete? Let's start with height and weight. Cross-country skiers are generally lean, like distance runners, but you get more variation in body weight than with runners. With an undulating course, lighter biathletes will gain time on the uphill, there's less weight to pull uphill, but heavier athletes will gain more time on the downhills. Given that most courses have a combination of uphill, flat and downhill sections, any body weight advantage doesn't seem to matter that much. Similarly, for height, you get a lot of variation. Comparing biathletes right now, Johannes Tingisbo is a big guy, 6 foot 1 or 1 meter 87. Quentin Fionmaie is 5 foot 8 or 1 meter 77. In the women's racing, Elvira Erberg is 1 meter 76, 5 foot 8, the same height as Quentin Fionmaie, whilst Dorothea Vera is just 5 foot 2, that's 1 meter 58. So there's a big variation in height amongst the elite of, of biathletes at this stage. One thing that height gives you is a longer stride. So does this help? If you think back to when you first saw Usain Bolt on the start line of a 100 meter race, what probably struck you was how tall he was. He was almost six foot four or one meter 95, much taller than many of his competitors. Now this gave him a disadvantage at the start of a sprint. He couldn't get his legs turning over as quickly as the others, but a huge advantage later in the race as his top speed was just incredible. Speed, though, is a function of both the length of your stride and the frequency. Increasing one of these means decreasing the other. Imagine you're walking normally, and then you start to take giant strides. You just won't take as many of them. You can't move your legs that quickly. Elite skiers, it turns out, have longer strides. Skiing with greater frequency doesn't make you go faster on the flats, but maintaining a longer stride does. When it comes to those uphills, those steep staircases, you shorten your stride and try to increase frequency so you don't grind to a halt. A good skier will almost look like they are dancing up a hill. So elite cross-country skiers and biathletes come in all shapes and sizes, just like the rest of us. However, on the inside, they're different. Within the muscles of regular people, you'll find a mix of fast twitch and slow twitch fibers. It's usually about 50-50 in your thigh muscles. Fast twitch muscles use up a lot of energy very quickly, then get tired and need a break. Usain Bolt and his ilk are all about fast twitch, which is why sprinters often look fatigued after a very short race. Slow twitch muscles use energy slowly and fairly evenly to make it last a long time. 
this helps them keep working for longer without running out of power. Studies have shown that elite cross-country skiers and other endurance athletes have more slow-twitch muscle fibres, maybe 65-75% to 75% of the fibres in their thighs. In addition, through training, they're able to make their slow-twitch fibres more resistant to fatigue, so even the bits that should get tired quickly can go longer than they could in you or I. That figure of 65-75% to 75% slow twitch is actually lower than the figure for distance runners who are about 78-79% or 79% slow twitch. Now this probably reflects that long distance running is quite a consistent process for the body, whilst cross country and biathlon still have demands for sprints, bursts, climbs, which demand more action from the fast twitch fibres. By way of further contrast, back to Usain Bolt again, he's probably 80% fast twitch fibres, so the exact opposite of our endurance athletes. Cross-country skiing is not just about the legs. The upper body has its work to do too. When you're in skate two, so remember you're pushing yourself along with both ski poles at the same time, it looks like it's all arms, but in fact a lot of the work is being done by the core muscles, with the shoulders and arms using the boost that that gives. The upper body is contributing about 10% of the total force when you're skating along a relatively flat section. In skate one, so you're dancing uphill or climbing the stairs, there's more work to be done by the arms and the shoulders, about 50% of the total force being exerted. Given this, the arms need to have a blend of slow twitch fibres for those long endurance elements and fast twitch for the uphill bursts and sprints. Typically, elite skiers are about 50-50 for fast and slow twitch muscles, muscle fibres in their arms, whereas you and I have much more fast twitch, maybe 65-75% to 75% in our arms. The balance of percentages will vary for Paralympic biathlon, depending on the nature and makeup of the athlete, but we should expect to see higher levels of slow twitch fibres to support endurance racing in the various para-disciplines too. So elite cross-country skiers have more slow twitch muscle fibres in their arms and in their legs. The next question is, how do we fuel those muscles? This is where the cardiovascular system comes in, and this is where biathletes are different again. Elite cross-country skiers have some of the highest aerobic power values re reported for endurance athletes. Now, VO2 max is a measure of how much oxygen your body absorbs and use, uses. It shows how well your heart pushes blood out to your muscles and how efficiently your muscles extract oxygen from that blood. This is important because muscles convert that oxygen into energy. If you've ever wondered why you breathe harder and faster when you exercise, it's because your muscles are hungry for more oxygen to create energy. Both the leg and arm muscles of most elite cross-country skiers extract oxygen to a remarkable extent, maybe 95% by the leg muscles and 85% by the arms. Very little is wasted. VO2 max can be improved by training, but it's also about genetics. The general research finding is that VO2 max is about 50% genetics and 50% training. Now what's interesting here is that presumably many top biathletes came into the sport having shown promise at cross-country skiing when they were youngsters. That promise turned into greater coaching at higher levels, club racing, youth teams and so forth. Now I'm assuming, although I could be wrong, that national team medics aren't testing the genes and muscles of children to look for good VO2 max and slow twitch fibres but it's actually about you showing aptitude when you're young because you have those characteristics and then finding this stuff out later. VO2 max is the benchmark. It's your ability to push out oxygen, which determines how far and how fast your muscles can keep working. 
Now you know how a goldfish will just keep eating however long you feed it, even if it ends up killing the goldfish. Well, your heart will keep on pumping based on the demands it's getting from your body. If it goes too far, then it will pump out blood too quickly before it's had a chance to fully recharge with oxygen. And that means your muscles have nothing to feed on and you're going to slow down. Cross-country skiing is different as we've seen to other sports because it places demands on both arms and legs. So the heart needs to be sending oxygenated blood up to the arms and down to the legs. This means that there's a balancing act and the body seems to respond by reducing blood flow to the legs and increasing it to the arms when needed to keep some kind of equilibrium. And here's the thing, while VO2 max is what tells us a lot about whether you can be a good biathlete, it doesn't necessarily predict performance. There are so many physical and psychological components of performance that it's hard to say any one thing is crucial. From a physical standpoint, biathletes are in condition to operate at their VO2 max from the start of the season, but the body is very much in leg mode at that stage. Peak performance in a season appears to be when the upper body comes into its best, in a measurement of peak VO2 for the upper body alone. So what happens during a race? Well, typically cross-country skiers operate at between 80 and 90% of their VO2 max, much as runners or cyclists do in time trials. However, it's not a consistent process. Those climbing sections of a course can push you to 100% VO2 max. The downhill sections are a blessed relief, unless it's slushy, icy, or both slushy and icy as we saw in Pakluka. You don't need as much oxygen when you're skiing downhill, so your heart rate drops maybe by about 20 beats. On a flat section, your heart rate is 10 to 15 beats below its maximum. While we're talking about oxygen in the blood, here's a thing. Trained athletes have a higher blood volume than you or I. Seriously, some people have more blood than others, and it's something you can train. But this matters because it means more red blood cells, which are the vehicles carrying all that oxygen out to your muscles. More blood also means that your heart adapts, so it pushes blood through faster, which means more oxygen circulating. The more you read into this stuff, the more you realise why blood doping became such a problem in so many endurance sports, rather than doping which sought to achieve other goals. Compare baseball, which had a steroid problem about building muscle mass and, mass and strength, with cycling, which had a blood doping problem aimed at building endurance and getting oxygen circulating more effectively around athletes' bodies. Anyway, a quick mention for the lungs, which are gathering all this oxygen and making it available. A lot of the health and fitness press suggests that there are exercises you can do to increase your lung capacity, but the science says you can't. Elite cross-country skiers have roughly 5-20% to higher lung volumes and flow rates than you and I, but this isn't something that's achieved by endurance training, rather it might just be something that you're born with. Again, your genetics create an advantage which shows in performance at an early age. The focus in training is not on trying to increase the size of your lungs, but rather on improving the efficiency with which you can load up, transport and offload oxygen around your system. The other types of fuels that are used by the body are carbohydrates and fatty acids. Carbohydrates come to your muscles courtesy of your blood again, which is delivering glucose as it delivers oxygen. This is an amazing courier company. As well as this glucose, there are also stores of glycogen within your muscles which can get tapped as fuel too. The muscles of cross-country skiers contain up to twice as much glycogen as those of non-athletes. So you have the oxygen and glucose being delivered by your blood, and you have these stores of glycogen that you can tap into. The use of both arms and legs means that you're accessing multiple fuel tanks within the body, compared to a legs-only sport like running or cycling. 
Now, if you've ever done a day's exercise that out of your usual pattern, going for a longer run, climbing a hill, going skiing even, then you'll be familiar with the onset of aching muscles, faster breathing, maybe even some nausea that comes along with it. This usually gets ascribed to lactic acid. So what's that? And what difference does it make to our build your own biathlete? Lactic acid is the byproduct that you get when your muscles break down carbohydrates. All that lovely glucose and glycogen is used for energy and what's left over is lactic acid. Now we've tended to see lactic acid as the villain in all of this, making us feel lousy as we go from couch to 5k. In fact, lactic acid is being produced all the time and has some valuable functions in the conversion of glucose to energy or as a substitute fuel. However, you can have too much of a good thing and lactic acidosis is what results. That's when you produce too much lactic acid and it doesn't get used or flushed from your system quickly enough. So lactic acid isn't necessarily the villain, but how does it affect our biathlete? Firstly, biathletes have a high anaerobic thresholds. That means that they can exert themselves more before the lactic acid starts to be generated. Secondly, the highest concentration of blood lactate occurs quite early in a race, as the athlete gets up to full pace and puts in that initial burst of work. After that, lactate levels in the blood stay pretty stable, meaning that the system is using up any additional lactic acid that is produced. Lastly, the arms of elite skiers release more lactate than they take up, but the legs take up more lactate than they release. Everything is finding its way towards balance again. Are you feeling tired yet? Let's take a break and talk some biathlon. Last week in Pakluka, we started with the sprints. Uh, the women's race was pretty open and hard to predict, but it went in the end to Elvira Erberg with a clear shoot and a more patient ski than we often see. She managed to conserve energy, focus on her shooting, and then put her foot on the gas in the last lap. Second, shooting clear and trying to chase down Elvira's time was Ms. Consistent Julia Simon, whilst Dorothy Vera managed a clear shoot to come third. It was interesting that Pakluka is at altitude, which suits Dorothy Vera, and perhaps bodes well for the forthcoming meet in Anholtz. There was a strong performance from Paulina Botovska-Fialkova, whose ski speed has improved this season, and those two young French biathletes, Sophie Chauveau and Lou Jean Monod, both featured in the top 10 again. As to the men's sprint, was it ever in doubt? Johannes became the first male biathlete to win the first four sprints of a season, this time by an even bigger margin of 48 seconds. This with one miss. By comparison, his closest World Cup competitor, Storaholm Ligrid, shot the same but finished 55 seconds behind. That's a ridiculous time gap. Between them, a name that we haven't heard this season, Johannes's older brother, Taye Bo, making it, as tw Twitter folks informed me, a Bodium. Saturday saw the pursuits. The women seemed reasonably exciting at the time, but looking back, not much actually changed from the sprint standings. Elvira Erberg had another calm and measured performance, shooting clear and winning by a decent margin. Dorothy Vera and Julia Simon rounded out the podium. Julia had some adventures after a couple of missed shots and a lot of chasing. Everyone else pretty much held station, apart from Marta Osbu Roisland, who moved from 16th in the sprint to 8th in the pursuit, and had, has had a solid return to World Cup racing. The men's pursuit went as you might expect. Johannes, with that 48 second lead, pretty much had the perfect weekend. The nice surprise was to see Quentin Fillon-Maillet, last year's overall champion, finding some form and moving up into second. 
Fionn Maillet hasn't been on great form this year so far, but I have a real feeling that he's focusing on the World Championships next month. He's a great tournament skier. He bossed last year's Olympics, and it wouldn't surprise me to see him peaking just at the right time to win some World Championship bling. One of the cool things about pursuit racing is that you can make up for a bad day's sprinting by having a good pursuit. Two names that stood out here. Johannes Kuhn of Germany, 44th in the sprint, moved up to 12th in the pursuit. And behind him in 13th, our friend Fabienne Claude, who finished 37th in the sprint, was obviously out to set the record straight. A new name for listeners to this podcast will be Tommaso Giacomel of Italy. He came 6th in the sprint and 5th in the pursuit, and he was fast. He missed two shots in each of those races and still finished that high. Again, this bodes well for Team Italy for the World Championships. Sunday was relay day. In the single mixed relay, it was fairly predictable that Tandrevold and Christiansen would win for Norway. So it was actually much more fun to watch some of the smaller nations to see how they would get on. Switzerland got a great third place with the very accurate Nicholas Hartweg and Amy Berserger. Finland claimed a great fourth place and the USA, Ukraine, Japan and Moldova all made it into the top 10. Thrilled for Moldova, in keeping with last week's episode about tiny countries doing great things. In the mixed team relay, again the result doesn't do justice to the race. France's A-team won quite comfortably from a strong Italian squad, with Sweden's women making up for their men to finish third. That masked some drama on the range, including some weird decision-making from Quentin fillon Maillet, which lost France a lot of time, a blocked rifle for Thierry Langer of Belgium, and a series of frustrating misses from the Germans. All in all, despite some horrible conditions, slush, ice, rain, wind and mist all happening at once, particularly on Sunday, and some predictable results, it was a good weekend of racing with an enthusiastic crowd and a very creative DJ keeping the crowd warm, building up the tension by playing the Game of Thrones theme tune as people came into the range. I'll look ahead to this week's racing shortly, but first let's have a quick look at the physiology of being a great shot. Whilst there's a lot of research into the physiology of skiing, there's less into the physiology of shooting, and most of that is focused on shooting as a sport in itself, rather than in tandem with cross-country in the form of biathlon. But let's see what the research says. Let's start at the top with the eyes. I talked about the concept of quiet eye in a previous episode. That's the idea of a sort of lingering gaze during the shooting phase as a way of achieving greater accuracy. Check back to episode 4 for more on that. More generally, it helps to be able to see reasonably well. Skiing in contact lenses is possible, but risky if you lose one. Canada's Emma Lunda used to wear lenses, but had corrective LASIK surgery in 2018 to improve her distance vision. Alongside pure eyesight, there's also the notion of visual acuity. That is your awareness of the stuff that's going on around you. It's a more significant factor in sports like basketball or football, where there are a lot of people moving all around you and you have to make split-second decisions. In biathlon, visual acuity might be helpful on the tracks, but could lead you to being distracted on the range. In fact, many biathletes wear a sort of blinker over their non-dominant eye during the shooting, so they can just look with one eye through the sights and completely focus on the targets. In Paralympic biathlon, visually impaired athletes have rifles that use sound to indicate how accurately they're aiming. They also use lasers rather than shot, something which has been taken up in modern pentathlon and suggested for biathlon more broadly too. A key factor for successful shooting is posture. 
In the standing, you obviously need strong vertical stability, i.e. the ability to stand up straight, pretty still, without too much wobble. That's hard enough in itself, without having skied for a few kilometres beforehand. You also need strong horizontal balance, the ability to keep your body stable on a horizontal axis rather than pitching from side to side or back to front. As you might expect, studies have found that biathletes shooting in a rest state, i.e. just doing shooting practice, have better balance and posture than biathletes who have just completed a lap of skiing. And that's the challenge of this sport and why it's so fascinating. The more you exert on skis, the less likely you are to be as effective a shot. Add in emotion, psychology, pressure, and the effect of competitors around you, and you can see why some biathletes lose sight of the threshold between ski speed and shooting accuracy. And you can see why Elvira Erberg is currently blossoming by taking a few percentage points off her skiing exertion, taking more time on her shooting, she's able to hit more targets and still be at or near the front of a race. There's another aspect of shooting which is about sensitivity, and that's trigger technique. You can't just aim and pull like you're in a western. That would send the rifle spasming all over the place, which A, makes it less likely that you'll hit the current shot, and B, makes it harder to maintain your aim for the next one. Shooting is about efficiency of movement, and that applies to the trigger finger too. It's much more of a gentle squeeze. Look, up the, look at the close-up coverage of the races this week and you'll see there's a squeeze of the trigger into a ready position and a further squeeze to take the shot. It's tiny and delicate and all about small pressure exerted at the right moment. One of the predictors of good shooting is the ability to control your heart rate. Partly this is an emotional or psychological factor. If you've ever played a sport where you had to take a shot when everyone was watching, be it pool or snooker or 10-pin bowling, you'll know that when you were all amped up and excited, you did worse than when you breathed deeply and took it slowly. In fact, much of this is happening internally and without you knowing. But you've probably experienced accelerating heart rate in times of stress, maybe just before recording a podcast episode or giving a presentation. That's your fight or flight system kicking in. So let's get to mid-race. You've been skiing to the point where your heart rate is in the 170s or 180s. You're about to take five shots under immense pressure. Your fight or flight system wakes up. How do you slow your heart rate down to give you the calmness that's needed for a clean shoot? Well, firstly, you'll see biathletes slowing down as they ski into the range. This helps shave maybe 10 beats per minute off the racing rate. In the prone shoot, you spend more time getting into position. So you're probably running 20 beats per minute slower than you were. The stand has less of a difference, but it's still there. The key thing here is that you're not getting down to a resting heart rate, which is usually 60 to 100 beats per minute. You're just bringing it down enough to slow your mind as much as your body, to a point where you feel you have the control to shoot your rifle. That point will be different for different people. And this is where racing tactics come in. Martin Foucard would often put a burst of speed on when coming into the range to push other people out of their comfort zones while staying within his. The other thing to mention again here is lungs. If you watch biathletes on the range, you'll see them establishing a very regular but quite personal breathing pattern as they prepare to shoot. A couple of breaths in, hold, then shoot. A couple of breaths in, hold, then shoot. Many biathletes hold their breath while they squeeze the trigger. Some exhale. Rapid breathing of the type brought about by skiing has a strong impact on your posture and on your ability to be stable both vertically and horizontally. 
in layman's terms, if you're breathing too quickly, then your rifle will be flapping all over the place. I wanted to add more here about training regimes, but it's a long episode already, and it's a long week of biathlon this week, so I'm going to save that for a future episode where I'll look at things like training at high and low intensity, diet, sleep, and the state of the art in athlete performance. It could get geeky. For this week's biathlon, we head to Rupolding in Bavaria in Germany. Rupolding is quite a large town compared to many on the biathlon circuit, with a population around 7,000. Its main period of growth came with the arrival of the railways in the mid-1800s, and the growth in popularity of spas and wellness centres. The great and the good of urban Germany would travel by train to healthy places, to take the clean air and the thermal waters, much as the great and the good of England travelled to seasides and lakeside hotels. It was perhaps the beginning of modern tourism, enabled by transport infrastructure. And it's interesting to see how the interaction of new types of transport has shaped the tourism industry and vice versa. But perhaps that's a subject for a different podcast. This week's schedule, Wednesday the 11th of January, that's tomorrow as I'm recording this, um, at 12.10 UK time, we have the men's individual 20km race. On Thursday the 12th of January, again at 12.10, we have the women's individual 15km race. Friday the 13th sees relays, uh, the men's relay at 12.25. And then Saturday the 14th sees the women's relay at 12.25. Sunday is our double header. We have two mass start races, the men at 10.30 and then the women at 12.45. We're going to see relatively warm weather again this week, continuing the trend for this year, meaning that conditions on the tracks could be melting snow over a layer of ice. So watch out for some Bambi moments, especially on the downhill sections. The individual races are longer, 20 kilometers for the men, 15 for the women and they favour those with strong endurance and good accuracy, over 20 shots. In the men's individual, this could favour someone like the informed Nicholas Hartweg, but he's drawn bib number one, so it will be hard for him to calibrate his race against anyone else. Johannes Tingisbo is wearing number three, so he will set a benchmark for others to chase. Jacamel and Ligrid also go early, so we could have a strong set of podium performances almost before the race has gathered any steam. If the track conditions stay stable, look out further down the list for some people who might be coming into form. Quentin Fillon-Maillet, Taille Beau, Johannes Dahle, and Johannes Kuhn. And I have a sneaky suspicion that one of the Swedish men will do something special this week. I don't know which one, but watch out. In the women's individual, Lisa Theresa Hauser needs to find some form, and it's exciting to see Dorothea Vera coming into good ski speed. Elvira Erberg and Julia Simon will be near the front. It feels like Marketa Davidova of the Czech Republic is building up to another good performance too. We then have the relays, men on Friday, women on Saturday. Look for the Norwegian men and the French or Swedish women to be favourites. And let's see if we can get some of the smaller nations on the podium again. Switzerland would of course be a nice option, but how about Finland doing one better this week? On Sunday, we have the two mass start races, head-to-head racing, which suits some athletes who like the rough and tumble of it, knowing where their competitors are. Emilien Jacqueline is normally great in this format, but is unlikely to compete as he's still taking a bit of a break and a refresh and refocus moment in the season. Bo is the obvious favourite in the men's mass start, but I think Giacomel could be up there again. He's fast and competitive right now, and I think he'd thrive in, thrive in a head-to-head last lap situation. Benedict Dahl is on very good form, and this could be where a Samuelsson or a Ponsuloma for Sweden finds some form. I think the French women really enjoy this format, so expect them to show well. Perhaps Lynn Persson of Sweden makes a showing here too. 
Again, I think she likes a competitive environment and her shooting has been great this year, 91% in both the prone and the stand. One last thing. Last week, one of the TV commentators said that standing shoot is easier for women because we have wider hips. There was some chat on social media about this. Was there any evidence? Put it another way, do hips lie? Firstly, let's just say this, we all have hips. So what the commentators were actually getting at was whether the curve of hips provides an advantage. In a standing shoot, right-handed or right-eyed biathlete will be holding the rifle in their left hand, resting the butt of the rifle towards the left shoulder. The left arm is bent and the left elbow sort of nestles into the front of the waist between the ribs and the hip. Again, this is one of those things that's much easier to explain if you have pictures. So go and Google image search for biathlon standing shoot and you'll see what I mean. The more you can kind of crouch over the rifle, the lower down you can get your elbow and you might find it balancing on your hip bone if and only if you have your hips at quite an exaggerated tilt or you have very long arms relative to the length of your torso. However, if you tilt your hips, you pay the price in terms of balance. You're less stable on one tilted hip than you are with balanced hips and equal pressure through your feet. So it's not about balancing on your hip or using it as a shelf. Is there something about wider hips giving you greater stability of posture? It doesn't seem so. This goes back to the discussion about height. Shorter athletes would supposedly have a lower centre of gravity, making them more stable in the standing shoot. But all the research I could find suggests that's not the case. You're either stable in posture or you're not, whether you're Dorothy Vera or Johannes Tingisbo. Thank you for listening. You can find a transcript of this episode, along with links to all sorts of background information and sources, at skishootrepeat.podbean.com. Please do give us a follow on Twitter at skishootrepeat and Instagram skishootrepeat. Please do get in touch to let me know what you're enjoying, what you'd like me to cover in future episodes, what I've got right, what I've got wrong. I'll be back next week to review the racing in Rupolding. Look forward to the next week of racing in Anholtz and have a discussion about one of the deep dive topics that I promised to have a discussion about at some time. Thank you for listening to Ski Shoot Repeat. I've been Lizzie Boyle.